Hello and welcome. My name is Simon Williams, and you're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Apologetics. And today I have with me Jerry Beasley. Hi, how you doing? This is the first podcast that we're doing on Northeast Christian Apologetics, and right now we're just trying to get the lay of the land as far as podcasts go. So today we're going to take it easy and just delve into some random topics, Uh, nothing too specific here. But in the future, we would like to discuss uh, certain apologetical arguments at length or theological topics at length. And I hope that you find that that is interesting and edifying to you. And uh, But for now, for today, just sit back and relax and uh, just have a listen. So, Jerry, we were just talking about a interesting uh, chemical that uh, you were uh, interested in discussing with us. Uh, it was DMT. That's right. Um, you're the one who actually has the full name in front of you. So Yeah, the dimethyltryptamine. Yeah, say that one five times fast. Yeah. It's a chemical substance that occurs in many plants and animals and which is both a derivative and a structural analog of tryptamine. It can be consumed as a psychedelic drug and has historically been prepared by various cultures for ritual purposes as an entheogen. So uh, you were talking to me about how it uh, impacts the brain and allows you to see images that you can interact with. Okay, so what the way from what I've read, let's start there. My understanding of DMT is that it's created by the pineal gland from the best of our guesses and it's used by the brain. It's a naturally occurrence like it like the description said, it naturally occurs in human beings and in the brain it's what it's part of the process, it's one of the key chemicals for the process to take what comes into your senses and process that into the image that you have in your head. So whenever you're looking at something or you're hearing things, all that sensory input has to be collated by your brain, the most complex um, structure, system, we know in the entire known universe is the human brain. And that human brain is uh, takes all of this sensory input and forms a, basically a picture in your head or... Um, an understanding of, of all that sensory input for you to comprehend. And DMT is considered to be one of, if not the, key chemical that handles that. So do you think that enhances the brain so that we're able to see more of what's actually there? Or do you think it produces an image that's so, not actually hold there? Hold on. Before we get into that, they call it a hallucinogen. But it's clearly a, a chemical that we already have in our system. So you're not adding in something like with LSD, okay? Um, you're adding more, and you need to take an MAO inhibitor because your brain already has a process in, in place. If you produce too much DMT, it'll absorb it. It'll, it'll get rid of it for you, you know? So that's already got that process. So when you're taking this in... Um, South America, they call it ayahuasca tea. There's a bunch of inhibitors uh, already in the tea that allow your brain to have more DMT in it than it normally would have, that it's normally designed to have. So you're overloading your brain with DMT. And that creates hallucinations. Now, what's interesting about DMT, what's different about DMT than anything else, and this is very well documented in a book called DMT, the spirit molecule. They did a federal study. They got a grant, and the federal government actually did a study on this. And that's the book that 
published his results for the layman. Um, I haven't read it. I've read a lot of interviews with the guy. I've read excerpts from it. I haven't gotten around to buying it. It's like 20 bucks. I probably should. Mm. If I knew I was going to be talking about it today, <laughs> I would have prepped. I would have bought it from Amazon or, or Barnes and Nobles or whatever and read it. And, you know, if I was doing a presentation on just DMT, that's what I'd do. I'd be ready for you. But yeah. This is, this is an off-the-cuff sort of thing. Yeah, so, that's fine. Um, the difference between DMT and every other hallucination hallucinogen out there is that you actually experience group hallucination. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting to me. Like, uh, because if uh, the hallucination is itself a very subjective experience, it's just within the mind of the person who's experiencing it. For other hallucinations, yes. Yeah, so I don't understand how it could be the case that you have a group hallucination. And that kind of concerns me on a couple of uh, apologetical issues that we can get into later. But um, so, so you were mentioning earlier that uh, you could actually interact with these hallucinogens or hallucinations and also re-interact with them. So... And Joe Rogan has been talking about this. I really? just found out. Yeah. Oh. And I don't listen to Joe Rogan, so I'm gonna. Me neither, but I have, uh, I have been wanting to listen to him a few times. Anyway, he. Uh, I remember him from the Man Show back in the what? Joe Rogan was 90s. in the Man Show. That's how he got his start. Really? I thought he no, was a comedian. He was on Ben Stein's Money. Um. Somebody else was the man show. There were two guys, and Adam Carolla like, and it's one of the late night guys that was uh, on the man show. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think it was Jimmy Joe, Kimmel. It was Joe Rogan was on Win Ben Stein's Money, which came out around the same time as the man show, which is why I got it confused. Okay, um, I'm sorry about that, guys. So, <laughs> Joe Rogan was talking about this. I don't know if he's had Graham Hancock. Yeah, Graham Hancock, who's a big proponent of DMT. Um, he's into, he's not a Christian. I'm not recommending him as somebody to go to for apologetics, but he's done DMT many times and he talks about it. And the thing about DMT is a lot of the people who do talk about it, I don't, I can't speak for Graham Hancock, but like David Icke are proponents of very much the new age yeah. and, uh, other such studies that come from Luciferianism. We're not recommending you take DMT. I would highly recommend you do not take DMT. Uh, but it is a very interesting experience because I, I usually use it as an example of um, when I'm talking about spiritual uh, reality and the, re the fact that there, there's evidence of, uh, of the spiritual realm because, okay, so here's the thing about DMT. Not only do you share the hallucinations, but there are Usually when you take DMT, you interact with beings that are not physically there. However, there's two things about DMT that are very key. There's two more things about DMT that are key. One, the next time you take it, you have a very good chance of interacting with those same spiritual beings you did the last time you took it, whether it's six months ago, a year ago, yesterday. Those same beings are likely to interact with you. They're called elves. They're called... Some people call them demons. Some people call them elves. Some people call them mischievous spirits um, nobody very few people have good experiences with them oh yeah very few people and the other thing is you unlike any other hallucina 
hallucinogen out there, you do not lose your sense of time while taking DMT. Really? Hmm. Attacking this from an apologetic standpoint, yeah. one of the things is that, uh, that uh, apologists use to defend the resurrection appearances mm-hmm. was, is in uh, second, or 1 Corinthians 3.15, in which Paul gives the, uh, I, it, for I have given unto you that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he mm-hmm. was seen of... Peter, the Twelve, and then 500 brethren, although some of them have fallen asleep. That passage in 1 Corinthians 3... By the deals... way, he just did that from memory. <laughs> the, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3 is uh, talking about group hallucinations. I'm pretty sure it's actually 1 Corinthians 15.3. <laughs> Yeah, First Corinthians 15. So one of the defenses of that is saying that you can't have hallucinations of a group experience. So uh, when people give an account of the resurrection experiences and saying, oh, those were just hallucinations, a lot of apologists say it can't be a hallucination because it couldn't have been a group experience. So that's, that's an interesting thing that this uh, chemical kind of knocks out. Like, yeah, you can't have. Really? Not really? So when you take it, you're not in... These people experience some weird stuff when they take it. You, It's not like you're sitting in the same room and a being just appears and starts talking to you. You have a trip. Right. Like, the world is not... You're not in the same place in the picture in your mind that uh, the room that you're actually in. Like, they see weird things. They see aspects of the universe... They are on a trip. It's a lot like LSD, in some ways. So actually, I don't. I've never taken any of these. I'm. I'm speaking of this from what other people have. So there's people who talk about going, th- journeying through the universe. You're. You're not. You don't see yourself in the same place that you are. Like an interaction with a spiritual being, like an angel, like Gideon. Gideon's just doing, going about his stuff on the farm, yeah. on his dad's farm, and an angel shows up. That is not the situation here. Okay, so... So, going to the group resurrection experiences, they're in the room. Like, it says it right when Christ shows up and walks through the locked door. True. in the room. Yeah. So, they are interacting with him in the room, and you're saying that DMT would give you a... An experience of something that's beyond your physical location, perhaps, or definitely. Yeah, it's not. Is this like an out-of-body experience? I don't know what it is. Nobody (laughs) knows what it is. Interesting. Interesting stuff. And the government paid for one study back in the, was it the 90s or the 80s or whatever, which is the DMT, the spirit molecule. That's the book. Yeah. Um, And that is... (laughs) We, we don't know. Like, I would suggest listening to some Grand Hancock uh, podcasts or whatever when he's talking about it. I've only listened to a few um, to get a better sense of it, if this is something that interests you. But, again, I use it as evidence that there is a spiritual realm. When I'm talking about it, like, there's scientific... Uh, uh, I hate... I always use the word scientific because we, we're used to using it. Yeah. But people use it in... 
ways that don't really mean scientific. They're like, oh, it's scientific, and they're, they're generalizing. What this, by doing the study, um, he went ahead and walked through their experiences. He kept them, in, they would take the drug in the same location in separate rooms, and they'd still be able to interact with each other. Interesting. And they'd have this, it was a shared hallucination, but it was still a hallucination. It was still a trip. Would it be, do you, would it be the same as if, is there a, a difference if people have a, a large, a larger distance? Somebody's taking the drug in I would assume Alaska, so. There's probably people taking it right now. And they would all be able to interact with the, each other? I don't, hmm. I have no idea. We haven't yeah. done that study. Interesting stuff. They may have completely different trips and if they are interacting with spiritual beings those spiritual beings are limited to only be in one place at one time mm -hmm. um, from our understanding of spiritual beings and angels and demons that we see in the bible yeah um, i'm not even going to like the book of enoch or other extra biblical texts that talk about stuff like this just from what we see in the bible um, spiritual beings except for god god is a spiritual being but every all the all the rest of the elohim the spirit beings mm -hmm. All of them are finite beings. And you're saying finite uh, uh, lo locationally. Yeah. Not just locationally. They have a finite amount of power. Right, yes. They're bound in time. Yeah. God is the only one who is not bound in time. And that, that means that they are limited beings. So if somebody's in Alaska taking this and somebody's in... I don't know, China taking this, then if that being is restricted in time and in some way space, yeah. then they wouldn't be able to interact with the same being in China and Alaska. Yeah. So uh, recently on a uh, YouTube video that I talked about, uh, that I was talking about God's attributes. And I was hoping yeah. that we could explore those a little bit here today. So... The attributes, and I was keeping it really basic in the YouTube video. Yeah. I just started off with the God as spirit, you mm -hmm. know, and then I said the omni properties, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, yeah. you know, and then I said God is morally perfect and uh, he is perfectly good. And I was like, if those, if you start off with those attributes, then you can start going into apologetics. Mm -hmm. um, there's more attributes than that. Yeah. With God, obviously, you know, I didn't talk about triunity and things of that nature. Uh, but, uh, um, but in relationship to some of the basic apologetics arguments, uh, they seem to be the ones that you just need to know in order to get the arguments going. Um, and I just so wanted to hear your perspective on why you think it's important that God is a spirit. One, because he is. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, simply, he's defined himself. God defines the universe. We don't define God. Right. The universe does not define God. And he created it. Um, he chose to designate himself as he. That was his call. Yeah, I actually have been studying that too lately. The whole uh, um, this God choosing to use the pronoun he versus, you know, Mm. Her or some other pronoun. You want to really quickly elaborate on that or no? Sure. <laughs> I was just thinking of it from a political perspective where people are, have been using uh, the female 
Yeah, people have been doing that lately. Like, lately, well, like God is a woman. It started when I was in high school 20 years ago. So, yeah. or at least I saw it. That's the first I knew of it. But you don't always know a lot of stuff before high school. And in high school, you barely know anything. True. <laughs> at least for me. It was for everybody I know. You barely know. You're just starting to really comprehend that there's a, a much... Comprehend how vast the world is. Yeah. And you're just getting a taste of it in high school. I'm barely getting a taste of it now, and I'm in my 40s. Like, is the only being who really can choose what gender he wants to be. And he he chose to be male. Yeah. And when he came so. to Earth, he came as Jesus of Nazareth. You chose to be male. Yeah. And, and I've heard, but a lot of people ask why. Why did he choose to be male? Why did he choose to be designated as a he? And uh, I've heard some people use, attack this question from a linguistic standpoint where um, ancient Hebrew language did not have a non-gender pronoun at mm. all. So rocks would be male and female. Like Spanish. And, yeah, like Spanish. So there were no non-gender-oriented pronouns or even words, except for, you know, like who, what, where, you know, those kind of words. So... Um, God either had to be a female or a male, and he decided to go with male. But there, there's still the question, you know, you can't, even though God had to be a male or female in accordance with the language that he was associating himself with, with the ancient Hebrews, uh, why did he choose he? Yeah, keep going. Okay. <laughs> you can go. <laughs> Working off that. Um... And going back to the attributes of God, God is not bound by time. God created time. Uh, because of that, he... Now, I don't really understand this 100%. In fact, the more I learn about it, the less I, the more I realize how little I understand, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. um, that's, yeah, that's, that's a great, humbling, but awesome experience. Uh, God knew... Now, he doesn't change. He's always been the same forever. Not the way we change, anyway. Uh, he knew about Christ before he, before he created Adam. So before day six, when he creates Adam, he already knew about Christ. He knew about all of this. And I, I don't like to use the word before because he's not bound by time, but we are bound by time, and he, very much so. Minutes... Seconds pass, whether we want them to or not. We can only go forward. And God doesn't go at all. He doesn't go forward. He doesn't go backward. He exists. And that's really hard for me to really wrap my brain around. But I would say one one thing we need to consider is he knew he was coming as he was going to be here as Christ, who was uh -huh. male. So you're saying that uh, since God knew that Christ was going to be a male? I'm not sure exactly why he does what he does that's his business and yeah i'm, I'm very curious cool to watch it but he did know i think um i think god's choice to use a maleness type pronoun hmm. um it isn't tied to the language that he was part of because like in the new testament the greek um it's a the greek uh, has neuter pronouns yes, so it, it could have been the case that god took on a neuter type of uh theos word but um 
the uh, so it has to be something else and and I don't think that it it's necessarily tied to the fact that Jesus was male that God knew that Jesus was going to be male I think that God actualized a world in which Jesus was male mm. so he did I, create the world then exactly I mean the world as in all of reality yeah <laughs> the so and um the so what I think it does is it, I think the main focus is that since reality as we see is a mirror or like an image of the heavenly scene mm. uh, it's it's rooted his maleness is rooted in the marriage union mm. you know where the husband there's a husband and then the wife and in the Bible uh, the husband is supposed to be the leader the head of the household. And the one who lays his life down for his wife and loves his wife and provides for the wife. Mm-hmm. And uh, the wife in the Bible is the church, you know. So it makes sense for the church to be female, which has classically been understood. The church is the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. And so God's maleness property is an expression of that marriage union where he is the groom. And the church is his bride, so it's a so his maleness attribute. He leans towards that because he's talking about this marriage union. Mm. So that's why I think he chooses the male pronoun. And he created uh, male and female. He created them. Yeah. So yeah, and one's not less than the other. No, that's uh, that's for sure. Especially for humans, ontologically speaking, like there's no difference between male and female as far as value. Mm-hmm. Uh, or morality or morality right um woman eve was taken out of adam's side not his head not his foot (laughs) out of his side (laughs) (laughs) i've heard a lot of sermons on that yeah Um, (laughs) it's very common (laughs) yeah uh god created the male female dynamic i think that's also why it's under attack by the world Mm. Is uh, they they're attacking God all the time. Yeah, um, it seems relentless. But it, it is relentless. We, our adversary is not flesh and blood. Remember Ephesians six twelve. We battle not against flesh and blood, but against the powers, the principalities, and the rulers of the unseen realm. So why do I think God is spirit? Yeah, <laughs> I was just about to say. I'm like, well, now because that we've God... <laughs> now that we've follow, uh, chased after the white rabbit, couple 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 of different rabbits there. <laughs> God existed before physical creation existed. Yeah. Um, that's one of your strongest arguments for why God is spirit. That Yeah, I, I agree. Um, he the can... whole difficulty comes in with the whole idea of quote-unquote before. You know, just like yeah. you were saying about the whole time and everything like that. And, uh, and different views of how the universe actually operates and how it exists. Mm. Like uh, some people see time marching on in a a a theory type sequence or or what's usually called like presentism where temporal becoming is a thing where the the past is real but behind us and never to be brought back again and all that exists is in the now and the future is purely potential and then the b theory of time where the past and the present and the future all exist simultaneously simultaneously quote-unquote and uh, they're all equally real so and uh, how that impacts uh, 
the physical world and how it interacts with God and the whole before thing is a little bit different. And uh, it's an interesting conversation for sure. I'm going to hit you in an entirely different way. Yeah. It all comes back to E equals MC squared. Okay. Okay. Now, yes, that stands for energy, electromagnetic energy in particular. Specifically, it's electromagnetic energy, light, radio waves, infrared, microwaves. That's all a form of electromagnetic energy. Energy equals mass accelerated to the speed of light squared. Now, this is the most powerful, most important philosophical statement of the 20th century is E equals mc squared. It changes our understanding of mass energy from a physics standpoint. Um, it had a, it's the impact, the understanding of that from the physics world is huge. Energy equals mass times, energy and mass are the same thing moving at different speeds. Yeah. That's mind-blowing. If you've studied physics and you're used to it, it's not mind-blowing, but coming into the world, that argument changed everything, all of our understanding of physics. But what it really does, more than anything else, is it solidifies, as much as, as, as that impact, that philosophical impact is, what the main thing that E equals MC squared did is it solidifies the fact that you cannot create or destroy mass or energy. Mm. It's called conservation of mass energy, or it used to be before equals mc squared. Converse, uh, conservation, not conversation. Conservation <laughs> of mass, right. conservation yeah. of energy. No, yeah. it's con conservation of mass energy, which means that you cannot create or destroy energy. It just takes a different shape. Right. Uh, when you set something on fire, you're not... In a closed system, you're not adding anything to it. You're not subtracting anything to that closed system. You're changing the nature of it. So the past does not exist anymore. Okay. Um, we have memories of it, and those events led to these events, but that physical state of mass energy is gone now. It has changed into this one. Change, is a, change or time is a fundamental aspect of our reality um, we can't go back to a state that doesn't exist anymore it's gone we can't go forward to a state that's not that doesn't exist yet it doesn't exist now that doesn't mean it didn't exist it means it doesn't exist that those molecules those atoms are being used in a different way right now they're the same atoms but they are currently being used in a different fashion yeah but the uh, same theory that e equals mc square comes from like special relativity kind of yeah. lends support for the b theory of time where time is relative you know mm. so it uh <laughs> i don't think time as we experience it um exists because we are I have memories of stuff that doesn't exist anymore. Those molecules have changed. Those atoms have changed. I'm using them, the ones in my body, I'm using them in a different way. Yeah, right, right now. Yeah, so... In this time, but earlier than now. Yes, there's earlier. But we can't go back to it. Right, we... Because it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, and the people from the B-theory time would just disagree with that. 
whenever I talk about uh, talk to atheists, whenever I talk to atheists and uh, discuss the Kalam cosmological argument, they always bring up the conservation of energy uh, mm-hmm. or the conservation of mass. And uh, for those at home who don't know the Kalam, even though there might be only a very few, I'm just going to quickly go through the uh, argument. Uh, this is my first uh, argument that I really learned. Uh, I think it's most people's first argument. It's a really great argument. But uh, it goes, uh, premise number one, anything that begins to exist has a cause for its existence. Premise two, the universe began to exist. And then three, the conclusion, therefore, the universe has a cause for its existence. And the conclusion is loaded with theological significance. Yes. But... You have to understand how the word universe is defined in the uh, in the argument. So what atheists do is that, or people who don't believe that the Kalam is a sound argument will say, the conservation of energy just destroys the Kalam because if energy can't be created, then the universe couldn't have begun to exist because mm. that's creating energy, right? Right. So... That's a, that's an interesting take. But at the same time, you know, like the conservation of energy, as you mentioned earlier, deals with a closed system. Mm-hmm. It doesn't talk... The conservation of energy is only relevant for closed systems. If it, the system isn't closed... You can add energy to the system. You can add energy to the system. So that's... That's the sticking point, is whether or not... It, the question is, how closed is the system. And what does the universe exist in? Yeah. It, what, what does that even mean? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> does yeah. the universe exist in anything? And a lot of atheists would be like, that's an absurd thing to, to ask. You know, there is no in for... I mean, when you talk about universe... Zero point energy. When I say universe in this instance, I'm talking about all of physical reality. That would be that would include like the multiverse and whatever quote unquote came before the Big Bang. Mm-hmm. You know, everything like that. So I am pretty I'm pretty confident that uh, A theory and B theory are both right at the same time. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. I think that they're both right at the same time. Yep, that's right presentism and everything is real right now is is the right answer because and this is the way that i attack it so like since god is a spirit this kind of mm-hmm. ties back to the first attribute that we're talking about god being spirit he's a he he's a conscious being he's an entity in which he's able to comprehend and uh, conceptualize things right mm-hmm. so the way that I see the physical reality is uh, the physical reality is like a book. And uh, when you have a book on your shelf, uh, between the covers of that book, all the events exist simultaneously. They're equally real, yeah. right? But there's a natural progression of the events. One event is preceded by another, preceded by another. And what causes those events to to transpose the reader so the way that i see it is god is the author of the book of the physical reality and he is reading the book that he has written Mm -hmm. and so b theory is true because everything exists simultaneously not simultaneously but is equally real 
But temporal becoming is, that's how we experience time because we are riding along as God reads the book. Mm. Because neither one, none of us, Jerry, I know you're very powerful, but (laughs) I don't think that you're so powerful as to have time progress from moment to moment. You know what I mean? I can't stop time, no. <laughs> you can't that stop is... or start time. And I, this is shocking to both of us. Powerful. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Yeah. We're both experiencing temporal becoming right yeah. now, you know, mm-hmm. each, each moment. And we're not powerful enough to bring up the past or anything like that. But the best scientific evidence suggests that possibly B theory is true. And so this is just an offer that I think is plausible (laughs) that they're both true at the same time. (laughs) And the only way that it can be possible that both be true at the same time is if God exists. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. There's a, there's a different argument for you. There you go. Yeah. For why B theory and A theory are true at the same time. I actually, conservation of (laughs) energy. Anyway, <laughs> let's go into time travel and whatnot. Um, in math, our understanding of math does not define the universe. It doesn't define it? Right, yeah. No. Okay. It describes it, though. It describes the universe. Yeah. Assuming you're actually accurate with what you're talking about. Math yeah. is a language. Yeah, yeah. Totally agree. Um, so when we're saying something like, again, you have to believe in observable objective truth. If you don't believe in observable and objective truth, there's really no point for us having a discussion because I, if something's not true, if you're going to believe that anything can be whatever, that there is no objective truth and there's no way to define anything. I know, but it's so self-contradictory whenever people say that. Is it objectively true that there's no objective truth? Nope. It can't be. It's self-contradictory yeah. because if it's true, then it's an objective truth, you know? So, <laughs> But people... A lot of people don't really recognize that right away. And you're not, not you, people are not always looking at the foundation of their philosophical argument. They're looking at their argument right now. Yeah, that, that happens a lot. Yeah, anyway, that happens to me. <laughs> so mathematics, we use that to describe the universe. A lot of what we know, and I'm using air quotes here, so I'll just tell you, quote, no, end quote, mm-hmm. um, about the universe is based off of mathematical theory. There's what we've been able to observe and prove, like e equals mc squared has been proven. We've observed that in, I forget what the exact experiment was, but you can look it up. It has been proven. We've done, we found a way to do experimental evidence to prove that it works that way, that the world actually works that way. It is now a scientific law. It was a theory for a long time based off math. And so we consider a mathematically proven theory to have a lot of weight to it. But if the math is based on on false assumptions, then no matter how good the math is, it does not prove it's not true. So if you say two plus, so we go to the basics. Math is a language, it describes reality. So two plus two is four is what everybody always uses. Let's use that. We're not saying that you can do it that so when somebody says something like two plus two equals five, that is not a true statement. And they're like, well, I'm redefining what five means. Well, that's fine. If you want to change the word, we can use whatever word you want. You can say dos plus dos is cuatro. It doesn't 
change the fact that sitting in front of you is a certain number of that if you have two of a certain number of apples yeah or if you have a certain number of apples let's say two and then you have another two apples you now have four apples that's describing reality yeah so what math allows us to do is to extrapolate using logic because math is a language of logic and an accurate description of reality you'd be surprised how many atheists there are who deny the reality that math exists it yeah. as independent not, from our definitions. The listener may be surprised by this. I've run into this argument many times Me myself. Me too, yeah. And they think that we just made up the laws of logic and things like that, and they're not discovered but right. invented. It's like, no. <laughs> All right, show me. The thing when you, when you start using law in a, a, a philosophical or scientific sense, law means it's been proven and we've never found an exception. Never found an exception. So if you're telling me it's not true that we it's, we're just making this up, show me the exception. You have made you have made an assertion. You need to defend it now. Right. Yeah. They're defend just, it. They'll say that they're descriptions of reality, but then say we created it, and it's like you can't have both because if you're describing reality, then mm-hmm. it's something that we've discovered. Well, again, they're objecting to the fact that there's a, they, there's such a thing as an objective truth. They're denying objective, observable truth. And that just destroys science. It so it's destroys like everything. everything. Yeah. If there's no such thing as observable truth, of objective truth, then you are now greater than the universe, which is where they want to be in the first place. Oh, Let's snap. go back to the... What? Oh, snap. They do. They want to be more powerful than the universe. They want to... Their argument, the argument that all of these different worldviews that we're dealing with today um, comes back to the Garden of Eden. Yeah, it always to does, doesn't you, it? Often, that is the root of most philosophical uh, arguments against Christ and objective truth, yeah. and goes back to Satan in the Garden. You want to be God. <laughs> you want to be God. You want to define your own existence. You want to be able to say you can do that. You don't want to be controlled by anyone. You don't want to be a tiny little cog in reality. But the truth of the matter is, you are a tiny little cog in reality. I am a tiny little cog in reality. That is the most objective truth I've been able to come across in my years on this earth. I am one small part of reality. I'm one person on one planet in one solar system in one galaxy in the universe. And that's fine. It's a great place to be. Um, but if you did not... So this also goes back to the beginning of wisdom. To wisdom and philosophical foundations. Uh, repeatedly in the Bible, about three, four times, it says, Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And part of the reason that we have fear of the Lord, and that doesn't... I often use other words besides fear in there to try and get the same meaning of what it originally meant because it doesn't just mean quaking in your boots terrified. It also means respect of the Lord. Um, and that's what I'm going to run with now. There's a few other aspects to the, the word that is translated as fear. But it means more than that. Different words mean different things in different languages. And we have to choose a word to translate it over with. So respect of the Lord is one aspect of that. And what that means is understanding who the Lord is is the beginning of wisdom. That's or that's one thing, one aspect of that very, the vast statement. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's a vast statement. There's a lot more to it than just, again, 
quaking in your boots, terrified. So understanding who God is, is the foundation of understanding. Um, it would be my argument in that it, once you get where you fit in the universe, that there is a universe, that things are objectively true, that there are things that we can all experience that are the same for all of us. There are universal laws. There are universal truths. Once you start getting that, you can start building a foundation for wisdom, a foundation of philosophy that will actually allow you to interact with reality in a way that is pragmatic, it's usable, and actually effective. If you want to, if you want to be ineffective, keep denying objective truth. You're not going to have an, uh, the kind of impact that is a positive impact on the world because you're not going to be able to interact with people uh, in a, in, with each other in a positive way because you're all going to have your own truth and that means that none, none of you have any truth. Or maybe one of you is actually on the actual real truth, but if everybody has, does what's wise in their own eyes, what's right in their own eyes, no one is going to be able to see how the world actually works and work things out. The greatest, I know I'm, I'm prattling on here, I'm kind of <laughs> dominating a little bit in the conversation. It's fine, I'll jump in when I need to. All right. <laughs> All the greatest advancements in technology and in our societies have been done by people of objective truth, people who have acknowledged that objective truth and been pragmatic about ways to advance what they're doing. So curing diseases, creating railroads, um, going even further back, uh, glasses, the invention of glasses. I'm extremely nearsighted. If glasses hadn't been invented, I can't see more than two or three inches in front of my face. Oh, snap. Yeah, like... <laughs> Abracadabra, I take my glasses off and you've disappeared. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, but glasses were invented during the Middle Ages um, by men by men of the church. I forget who, where they were exactly done, but it, these are men who acknowledge reality and dealt with the fact that they studied lenses and how lenses, how concave and convex glass um, impacts uh, picture. And using that, they were able to create lenses that, because of this objective truth that light shifts uh, focus when going through a convex or concave uh, piece of glass, which can make images bigger or smaller, they were able to create glasses, which we met plenty of people use today, both of us in this room, that allow us to be able to see better, to see the world around us and interact with the world around us. And that wouldn't be a thing without an objective truth, understanding the world around us is objectively what it is. We can observe truth. And without that, you don't have anything. You don't have cars, the internal combustion engine. You don't have uh, metallurgy. I'm sorry, I'm looking at, I'm getting inspired by things in the room. He's got a sword <laughs> up on the wall. Um, swords, uh, metallurgy, the Middle Ages changed warfare. I don't know why I'm back on the Middle Ages, but they changed warfare by creating, um, full plate armor uh, because of the screw. It is mm. the screw that allows the invention of full plate armor. Hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's what Me. holds everything together. And until the I Europeans... I always thought it was a, like a, a rivet or something. It's just a little screw. Hmm. And anyway, because of that, you can hold armor together and get to the point where 
a man in full plate armor, and they also were working on steel at the same time. So this is very thin steel, but it's very strong steel. So, uh, and when done with the, the proper glazing to protect it from the elements, a set of full plate armor will protect you from anything a man can do to you at that time period. You were basically, you were very close to invulnerable wearing full plate against a, in a one-on-one -on -one situation. Hmm. Um, it would be gunpowder that would get, move us away from armor. But now that we're interacting with, uh, what do you call that stuff? Uh, nanocarbon, microcarbon Oh yeah, I heard chains. about that. Yeah, interesting. Interesting stuff. Which binds stuff so you get like a chain of molecules and then you weave it together at a molecular level. Um, we're actually looking at armor coming back as a major aspect because now we're getting stuff that can stop small arms fire effectively. Yeah. Uh, it's not single use like a bulletproof vest. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. But this is all being done, again, by people who've accepted that there is an objective reality and that we can understand it. We can think the thoughts of God after him. So. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, the fathers of science were all Christian of some sort. Mm. If not Christian, then theists. You know? Most of them were trying, again, I forget who said it, but I'm trying to think the thoughts of God after him. Uh, should we end in prayer? Uh, sure, why not? Yeah. All right. You want me to pray? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you, God, for this opportunity for... Uh, Simon and I to be here to talk to the world, um, share our views on, on the world, Lord, and little objective truth out there. Uh, anybody listening to this podcast, uh, thank you. Um, God, please bless their lives, lead them to you. Uh, we do all of this, Lord, for your glory, not for our own. Uh, help us to never seek our own glory, Lord, but always yours. Um, you are the Alpha and the Omega, the creator of everything. You've given us your Son, who's died for us and came, was resurrected for us and gave us new life. We thank you for that, Lord God. Jesus, we love you. Help us to serve you and honor you and get, grow closer to you and hang out with you because those are the best times is hanging mm -hmm. out with you, Lord God. You're yeah. always with us. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you very much for listening to our podcast. We hope to do more in the future. We uh, do have social media accounts, so if you would like us on Facebook, that would be much appreciated. Also, sharing this podcast would be very much appreciated, as well as prayer. This uh, ministry also has a Patreon if you would like to contribute and support us monetarily. You can find links to our Patreon on our website, which is Northeast Christian Apologetics. That is www.nechristianapologetics.com.